Welcome to the Witches and Wine audio experience. Contrary to what we see online, magic as kind of a, an external persona, right, being the external persona of, as the witch or the magician, is actually completely irrelevant to the practice. But magic is not, to me, really about the human community. It's about the kind of community of power and allies and, and spirits. When Aiden's talking about allies, he's talking about spiritual allies. It's all the spirits around you that are in your court. They're on your side. They're helping you out. And this is a concept that he goes over a lot in his first book, which is one of my favorite books, Six Ways. Sorcery is kind of the root of human culture. We can see these kind of sorceress or shamanic or spiritual practices throughout the world. They're actually more similar than they are different. So if we look at that concept and go, okay, so if most cultures have had these kinds of practices, to me, the obvious kind of Occam's razor thing is because they work. Otherwise, they wouldn't have developed so universally. And so coming in with that idea that instead of this is superpowers, mm -hmm. instead of this is arcane knowledge, instead of this is boo scary occultism come in with the perspective that this is absolutely normal for a human to be able to influence their world i love everything that you said and i was kind of furiously writing notes this word came to my mind naturalism i'm reading a book right now uh, by dr jeffrey kripal called super space natural the supernatural mm -hmm. I'm talking about how it's actually natural. It's super because it's not something that the average person may think about every single day or even experience, but it's actually natural. This is the natural way for things to be. And I think that that's something that I picked up on probably, I would say in the, in the, in the mid to late 90s is, is that was the kind of biggest shift that I've ever experienced was I like went, wait, this is my issue with so much of the languaging around occultism and particularly around ceremonial magic um, and my issue with a lot of the practices that uh, kind of get thrown into the chaos magic camp and it's really the point where i began divest kind of divorcing myself from consider being considered a chaoist if we take that base view that this is a natural these are natural processes and that like every other natural process that is available to human beings it's going to be more available to some people than others. To this day, I have never technically had one of those like great visions of Hecate or any of these archetypes and deities that I work with. And it would be really easy for me to be like, man, I am not made to be a witch because everybody else has had some sort of contact, some sort of, they saw a black dog or they saw a black crow. I haven't seen shit. Part of it is that we're in a very visual culture. The, the star pupils, and this is true, was absolutely true when I started out, were the people who could hallucinate it well. Um, I'm not that guy. I did insane amounts of psychedelics as a young person because I really wanted to hallucinate all the time. And considering the volume of that stuff I did um, and the dosages and the quality, <laughs> this was not you know, a question of occasional bad quality, um, I very rarely saw anything. Um, with only a couple of exceptions. But I still don't see anything like the people that I know that just can see everything. Mostly what I've learned is that if I'm not focused on sight as the, as the key element there, I get all the information anyway. It's like I learned that if I can be calm enough and relaxed enough um, and kind of internally quiet enough, 
then I am getting all the information that I need to proceed to the degree that like sometimes in podcasts, I like straight up channel from my allies now. And I know what the feeling is and I can tell what they're trying to communicate, but I'm not hearing their voices. I just know it's not me at that time because I've learned that feeling. I think that's one of the things that really drew me to Believing Fate because it's basically a book about the power of what mainstream society would call imagination. Mm -hmm. But I never thought of that as being particularly magical. And yet the way that you framed the magic conversation is that actually magic is the natural state. So imagination, um, having the feels, um, enjoying things, like even in uh, Six Ways, the way that you talked about aesthetic things, the way that mm -hmm. some people would just be like, oh, you know, this just looks magical. But you're like, no, actually, if it looks magical and it feels magical to you, who's to say it's not magical? So it's like trying to, to reframe and to shift the paradigm into this is, this is us. This is actually, magic is actually the way humans are. So we're kind of reclaiming that. So let's not bother with this entire like, oh, this is magic. This isn't magic, whatever. And I was thinking to myself, so many people who are creative, they're really good at feeling things, but the paranoid, dark, worst case scenario things, they're really good at envisioning worst case scenarios. They're really good at stuff like that. So it's already part of their repertoire. Lots of people have been doing this since they were very young. So they have the skill. And this is a skill that in this book that you're teaching us how to refine so it doesn't control us. We are working with it. So let's talk a little bit about this book because it's very different from Six Ways. Weaving Fate is about using three related tools, one of which is a, what I think of as a false journal. And that's the primary tool. And it's a, the false journal is where you write your life as if in the way that you want it to be as if it's already happened. And then you do a whole bunch of, you know, booga booga stuff around it too, <laughs> to uh, actually kind of amp up your experience of it and its kind of connection to the field and the ally. Like we said, the black book is where we kind of intelligently fantasize about what we would like to experience and the kind of life we would like to have. And then with the corridor, the primary use is that going back through places where we got messed up, this book has has roots to when I was really young, um, and I fell in with some industrial music fans when I was 15 who were older than me, and one of the things that they talked about a lot was tape loops, and this, I think, comes from William Burroughs, probably. But Are we talking like um, Robin Gristle sort of stuff, too? Yeah, absolutely. These are the guys that turned me on to that whole world, and so... What they were talking about with tape loops is, is they were saying that you have these ideas in your head that just run when they're triggered, right? When the button gets pushed, that thought process starts up and it runs through its whole process. It's a knee-jerk reaction. And so it works like literally like the tape loop that was your introductory message on an answering machine. So you call that number <laughs> and that tape rolls and it says something. This is how kind of our past experience tends to influence our current reality. So I see something where I, it, someone says something that triggers something in me, right? It's pushing a button of mine and they aren't pushing it. I'm pushing it. And that tape plays out. Hello, no one is available to take your call. Please leave a message after the tone. And so that tape is usually bad. We usually aren't running positive tape loops. This tends to be what we do with bad experiences. What we're doing in the corridor is we're going to places where we believe these were created and we're changing the story. We're actually basically kind of fucking with the tape. Um, we're gonna change what that tape says so that when those triggers kick up and we respond to them, because that's what we do, the information that we're then playing and repeating to ourselves on a very deep level, this is rarely conscious, no longer is causing us the problems it did before. I can almost imagine like a little kid sobbing 
while there's like an authority figure like forcing them to like record this tape loop and they're just going to play it every time the kid does something the authority doesn't like playing the loop playing the loop you know what i mean yeah and we think about it and i talk about it in weaving fate so it's you know the most obvious ones that i see and and, and the great ways to find them are the ones that our parents tend to give to us are laid in like who do you think you are oh my god yeah. to believe that this is possible for you and these things get overlaid to so many situations that we know when it's coming right we know the things not to say because we know what the response will be and for some people they don't buy it this is like a beautiful thing and i know a ton of these folks and for society, whatever reason yeah, and then society like totally like grinds them down they'll it'll see if they can it can smash them but a lot of people are just straight up from like an early age fuck y'all you know and so these loops get kicked up when we think that's coming somebody says something that should be innocuous and we explode we shut down we curl up and go fetal right yeah it's just a button that we play that tape and so the corridor is a way of again kind of recording layers over that and the original tape doesn't really go away it's just it starts getting masked right it's like if you were tracking over the top but not erasing a tape so you could do that the tapes they you could record over them many many times um but sometimes you could hear faint background noise from like the pre the, the previous two recordings that you made even if we still hear the old voice we're also hearing the new voice and the new voice makes us question whether the old voice is necessarily correct. I think in our first interview, the one that didn't get recorded, unfortunately, <laughs> we, we were talking about how I've had so many experiences, and I'm sure everyone else has as well, where you were really, really into a person romantically. Like, you debased yourself for them. You swore that you would love them for the rest of your life. And then one day you learned something. And it might literally be one piece of information. And then from that moment on, you're like, ew, I don't like that person anymore. <laughs> yeah. It's a complete <laughs> shift. Just oftentimes it literally is one small piece of information. And it's like, if you knew it all this time, you wouldn't have been so hung up on this person. But now that you know, you can't look at them the same way. The same idea, right? Where things just shift. It's just a reality, right? There's a million songs about this. And there's a million books about this. And so part of what we're trying to do here in Weaving Fate is take charge of those processes and this is a very huge piece of magic is magic is about what do we give power to and what do we deny power to how would we deny power when it comes to magic by ignoring something to me it's about headspace more than anything else i know folks that are stuck in what i call museums and the museums are a particular event or a particular relationship that went some way this is good bad it's not there's not a it's not necessarily a, a positive or negative about the experience but they hold that as tightly as possible and they try and live in that forever oh my god that's like half the great literature in western canon <laughs> <laughs> yes right. absolutely absolutely right so someone had this amazing relationship when some moment previous to now so nothing else will ever stand up to it right yeah and how they work this is they're always playing whatever they're experiencing now against that past experience as you know a few years ago my son died suddenly mm -hmm. and one of the things that was really beautiful about that which is weird to say but there are actually a number of very beautiful things related to his death that occurred was a lot of people came out of the woodwork when they found out who had also lost children and they were amazing because it's one of those things that's very difficult to talk about and it's one of the reasons that i do talk about it is because it's not an uncommon experience but one of the things that i found very interesting was folks that were in what i call a grief museum that they cannot let go of the grief because they feel that if they let go of the grief they're letting go of the last thing they had from that person i totally get it 
because I had to actually go through that process. I just went through this brutal experience, but that was not the 30 years I had with my son. And one of those things is important and the other one isn't. To me, I can't say for anyone else what they is important to them. I guess the, the sort of magic that makes us feel empowered, that makes us feel connected to the field, to ourselves, makes us feel natural, is to say, I don't have to just stay on this track. I can go to whatever track that I want. You know, if we, if we look at, you know, previous to whatever the current guess is, you know, 12,000 years ago when the Neolithic revolution started, before that we were largely wanderers to some degree, right? Most people, most peoples were um, hunter-gatherer types. And so you're kind of just moving around according to necessity or interest or availability of food. And we can see this kind of uh, patterning in old world patterns, right? If we're looking at cave art, things like that, stone art, we see lots of spirals, lots of circles, lots of wavy lines, right? But as we kind of move into this kind of experience of agriculture as a large scale thing, we begin to move into these kind of square boxes is how I would describe them. And these are those tracks. And it became very clear as we moved from kind of feudal states in the West, at least to the industrial revolution, we had to shift society in a way to set up these kind of caste systems for lack of a better word, um, where you get to do only certain things because of who you are and how you were born. And this is kind of the roots of Western culture in my mind. And that's what I think of as the tracks. And so the tracks say, you have to fit in, be that based on sexuality and gender identity and who you would like to have sex with or if you would like to have sex with anyone or what you look like based upon your gender identity. And if you don't do those things, then you're fucked. And that to me is kind of that total bullshit lie of, of kind of the current culture. This is so profound. I don't, is that what separates, let's say somebody who, who takes uh, magic in their hand versus somebody who decides not to focus on magic? I don't want to say like somebody who is magical versus not magical, because as you mm -hmm. said, all human beings have magic. That's not the issue. But is this desire, willingness, playfulness about optionalities, about, ooh, there's all these different tracks. Let me see if I want to go on this track or that track. Is that what makes a witch a witch? I think it is. I mean, I think that that's the big key is, is and this is one of those places where that, that kind of questions become an interesting thing. So for some of us, none of the tracks are attractive. And we might use them for a minute. We might hop a train or we might take a train to the next town, but we're not going to stay on that train. And I think that that understanding that you have options and that options are interesting and exciting and that change is interesting and exciting in and of itself is if I was looking at kind of the ideal magical practitioner, that's the thing is going, no, this seems really interesting. And everybody else is going, well, that could end horribly. And you go, yeah, it could. And that's really interesting. <laughs> oh my God. It's like skateboarding, right? <laughs> it's like, and that's, I think, the thing that is amazing about being alive. We believe, most of the time, we believe we know what happens next. Otherwise, we would be very interesting people. And to me, the, the, the magical practitioner, the person who's willing to kind of get their hands dirty in the guts of, of, of the field is saying, I am aware that what happens next is up in the air. And I have some preferences for how that might go. Is this where the black <laughs> book comes in? This is where the black book comes in, absolutely, as you begin playing in the black book, looking at a life that is more interesting to you. Can you explain what is the Black Book exactly? So the Black Book is, is, is a journal that has been uh, treated magically before you begin working in it. It's been consecrated, to use a magical term, using a variety of methods um, to make it special. And one of the, my definition of consecration, since I'm not religious, is to make something special. And consecration is a very, very big part of magic to me. 
And so we make the book special and we make the pen that we write in the book special through this consecration practice. And your book goes over how to consecrate. Absolutely. It goes through all that stuff. Um, and so in the black book, we began the process of imagining a life we would like to experience. And we began writing journal entries as if we have experienced those days. Last time we talked about these two hypothetical cases. And one of them mm -hmm. was um, this <laughs> young man who was probably on the path to becoming a hardcore incel, uh, living in his mom's basement, uh, probably just graduated from high school, but isn't going to college because he doesn't have the money. He's not feeling great about himself. He's spending all his time on message boards, just spewing stuff. but. Deep down, he does want to evolve because he's reading Nietzsche, but not in the way Nietzsche probably wanted him to read it. And he's talking about the red pill and the blue pill and trying to evolve past his current station. So let's say that he gets your book and then he decides, all right, I'm going to consecrate this black book, whatever book, um, pen, just all the materials. What would he do? He's going to do all sorts of shit, um, <laughs> which is totally fine and is an important point to throw out there. There's not a, a right starting place here. Given who he is, he's probably going to start asking for things that are completely outrageous. <laughs> so, so would he, like, for example, if he starts it on Halloween, would he write it as, like, December 25th, you know, like, my life is awesome. I have a really big tittied, you know, like, girlfriend who, like, I have sex with constantly, a Ferrari, and all the guys. Exactly. Fully this is probably where he's going to start, and this is just fine. But, yeah, he's probably going to go, I am insanely rich. I have a bevy of, of beautiful women with terrible oral fixations <laughs> that I have to lock out of my house. And that's totally fine. But what he's going to find is that most of that stuff does not come to pass. <laughs> and if he continues with the work in the black book, he's going to realize, or in Weaving Fate, he's going to realize that, okay, I'm kind of jumping the gun here. So this um, is not a one-time thing. You're not just writing so one not a, <laughs> No, this is so not a one-time thing. This is a, you know, as I say in the book, I think like six months is a good break-in period. Uh, I've been doing this for many, many years you know, more than 15, I guess, consistently. And I took a big break for a while before I discovered things didn't work as well when I took a big break. So kind of this guy is, is going to start there. And a lot of people are going to start there. But what you're going to find is we're looking for a particular thing that I spent a lot of time trying to get people access to, which is what I call the feeling sense mm -hmm. of what does it feel like to have the things that you want? And can you write in how you feel internally and emotionally about the things that you want? And this usually, and not everybody has this experience, but with most of the folks that I know who have played with this stuff, this is usually kind of what begins the process of weeding out, is usually somebody goes, okay, the monolithic idea, and I talk about the monoliths in the thing where we're talking about the tracks that I have, is for my life to, be, to be better, I want to be, I don't know, Joe Rogan or something, right? <laughs> I want to be, I want many millions of dollars in the bank, more coming in all the time, so I don't even have to worry about having an accountant. And uh, I want to be, you know, hugely popular and jacked and all that shit. What tends to happen, and it tends to be organic, it's not like somebody has to work real hard at this, is they begin to go, okay, actually, here's the deal. I live in my mom's basement and I don't like it and she doesn't like it. <laughs> and so it's a pain in my ass. So I would like to not live in my mom's basement. And if we're fairly smart, we began writing in the book about this. So maybe we're writing about moving in with some friends. Maybe we write about moving into our own apartment. Maybe we begin writing about we realize we need more money than we get working whatever job that doesn't pay very well. So we go, hmm, maybe I could develop a skill or two. What's interesting? And we begin working on developing those skills, both in the real world and in the black book. So, okay. So what I'm hearing is that when you first get your black book and you consecrate it, 
you're kind of in a way really excited. So you're just going to blow your wad in the first couple of entries probably. And you're going to be- Or like, the first book. Or People the first will book. do this for hundreds of pages. Like you're just putting in, you're in all your fantasies and you're like, yes, this book is consecrated. It's magical. Aiden Walker, he has a reputation of being like the magic guy. So what he says is going to like make all my dreams come true. And then this guy, this incel guy, he fills up the book nothing happens and that's when maybe once he's gotten that excitement out of the way then he's like wait a second maybe i'm gonna listen to what, this did, he, what did what did he actually suggest yeah exactly <laughs> maybe just what did like, he actually suggest yeah. and how crazy were those suggestions because they weren't very crazy because <laughs> um, what i'm hearing is you have this really good piece of advice here which is okay, like get all that excitement out. Cool. You have sort of um, something to look back on and maybe you'll, you know, go and into the future, like put that back into your sort of wish list or whatever. But there comes a point where you're going to be like, what is it about my present situation that I'm not crazy about? And let's, let's start there. And that is the really big key is if we go for that, if we go at, I think of it as incremental shifts leading to radical change. Ooh, love it. Um, and so what we're after is we're after easing the steps that we can see, meaning the steps that clearly would lead us closer to what we're after. We work those, but we also work beyond those to kind of experience states that are a little bit more on his fantasy level. What we're trying to do basically is find where we really sit. Because again, we're existing in other people's fantasies as well as kind of the tape loop stuff we talked about before. What do you mean by other people's fantasies? What I mean is, is there's an immense number of people that if you were to ask them what they wanted in life, would tell you that they wanted to be a billionaire or... Win the lottery. To win the lottery. Most people will throw out some version of this. I want the family, the two and a half kids. That's not really what they want. Those are the things that they have been told are success. Aiden, are you suggesting that all the vision boards that people have been making, cutting out the mansions and the horse farm and the really hot spouse and the piles of money and the two gorgeous kids, all that stuff, are you saying that that law of attraction vision board that Oprah Magazine told us that we should make is not necessarily what's going to get us there, that we may not even actually want that. I am saying that, but I'm also saying that that for some people, that is exactly what they want, but they won't know unless they do a fair amount of work to figure that out. And if you don't do that, you are chasing things that you don't really want. And in general, you either will not get them because your heart really isn't in it on a deep level, or you will, and you will be very disappointed. Um, for most folks, and for me in particular, it took me a couple of years to get really good at it, but I could see it was working from about four months in. And what was interesting was there were like little things were happening that were reflections of the, what was in the book. Was it because your technique in terms of the journal entries that you were writing in the Black Book, is it because those started to shift a bit from they, st first they start, yeah, but it's not even, but it, that's not really what it is. Cause somebody could have like good writing skills mm -hmm. and, it, and miss this point. What I began to realize is that the more I focused on what my experience of internally was of the things that I was writing about rather than the things themselves, the better I did. So we might imagine ourselves as you know, like X in the book imagines herself as a successful photographer, right? She might find success in a totally different field, but that the experience, she's going to look back and go, oh shit, this is that whole summer I was writing about my art gallery experiences. I'm having that experience, but it has nothing to do with my art being in galleries. Okay. So if we go back to incel boy, mm -hmm. so let's say that, okay, he's decided that he's going to start writing things a little bit more like you're advising. And so mm -hmm. he wants to move out of his mom's place and he talks about that and he, and he just wants a, a slightly better job than the low paying dead end job he's at right now. And so he decides he's going to write about it like, you know, dear diary, 
Um, I woke up this morning and I'm feeling so great and energetic, you know, like I am about to go to this new job and I found this job really easily. And he's describing this like great day, right? Mm -hmm. But just because he writes down, I'm feeling great because of this new job, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be that new job that he gets that makes him feel great. Maybe six months down the line, what happens is, is that he gets an opportunity to go to school full time and he feels mm -hmm. great because of that. Or and and what he finds, and this is what most people find, is that these what what happens is less than the really specific event happening exactly as it is laid out. Though that happens um, for sure, and I've had a lot of that. Is it's like it's like paddling a like a, a boat or a surfboard or something into a current that is headed in a way better direction than the one you were in before. And then things begin to really unfold because you begin to kind of hit, you're in that current and you're starting to actually write from already being in that current. Mm -hmm. So the shifts become much smoother. I would say 50% of the results that I get are specific to the things that I'm imagining happening. And the other half is tied into that kind of feeling sense where you go, wait a second, I was foreseeing myself in a different relationship having this experience, but my relationship has corrected to be that experience. So you should write these journal entries specifically and with a lot of feel and adjectives and sensory sentences, you know, I felt this, it tasted like this, I saw this. Mm -hmm. um, and try and really feel these things. Just don't be a good writer. Try and imagine it as clearly as possible that that was the day you had. Would you say that the more emotionally caught up you are, like it's almost like the, the image that you put down, the event that you put down in the black book, you're almost like lost in it. Like you're reading a great novel, you become that character. Absolutely. That, that, that has been my experience. That, and it tends to come and go. So that's the other thing is you'll have periods where it seems really forced and you'll have periods that seem really fluid. When it's really fluid, I just fucking go for it. Already, even though we're writing about a future that we would like to experience, it has a feeling of nostalgia. Yes. This makes me think that those of us who've been castigated all our lives for being super emotional and dramatic and caught in our fantasy world, that's actually a superpower. It's totally a superpower. <laughs> it is totally a superpower. Because you can imagine, and this is the thing, is so I'm one of those people that, that has a, it's not constant, but I have and I've always had since I was a little kid, uh, a tendency to project to the worst, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I've had to do quite a lot of work to that, but I still do it. Like I have terrible thoughts about the death of people that I love on a semi-regular basis. And now I know that that's just something that my mind does and it's not important. It doesn't mean anything and I don't have to attach to it, right? Is it a loop? Is it's a loop. Mm -hmm. um, somewhere I was trained, I was given a lot of fear about these things. I don't know where. And it's not nearly what it was. It's, it's, it's now, you know, an occasional thing. But I remember being young and having it run a lot. But the thing that I can do is I can go, I can wake up in the middle of the night because I have some insomnia tendencies and I decided that that should not be a bad thing a long time ago. And I decided that when I woke up at night, I would use it. And I would use it by trying to do trance work. And I would use it by imagining things that I found really fascinating and interesting. So if you have ever had a sexual fantasy about anyone real or imagined that you were able to get off from, you can do anything with magic. Power in magic is kind of, it's, it's how I think we can kind of find the currents when I talk about the currents in magic, is the currents in magic are currents of power. And power is kind of what makes the world go round. This is not, this is not about power with other people. I'm talking about the actual thing that is described as noima or baraka, right? Um, they're often linked to breath, but there's, there are versions that are tied to blood or sexual fluids. There is a raw power component to magic, which is more important than your visualizations. And it is about how do you know when it's on? 
basically. How do you know when you're on the track and the train is coming at you that you are either able to stand on the track and it can't pass or that you have the power to step off of the track? So it's, power is a feeling. Power is a feeling. I, I think I know what you're talking about. There are some times, and this could happen in the city as well, you don't have to be out in nature. You don't have to be in a particular situation. I could just be walking down the street and suddenly I feel bigger than I actually am, bigger than my body. And as I'm walking the motion, this feeling of like supreme, and I think peace is a good way to describe it, but it's more than just like what people think of like, oh, peace as in like you're sleeping or you're just like laying down and you're relaxed. There's a dynamic quality to this peace. And it's this feeling that I am living this life, I'm moving through life, and that there's a sense of competence, a sense of almost like competent joy. I don't feel mm -hmm. out of control. I'm walking through the street and it's just a simple walk and yet I feel big, I feel competent, I feel flowy, I feel, I feel almost like I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. If we can find that feeling in the Black Book or in any of the magic we do, we are way ahead of the game. Because it's not about pumping energy into our sigils or pumping energy into our magic. It's like, can we find that flow within it? Um, and to me, that is, I guess, yeah, I would say that the flow is probably the better, is the closest thing to it that I can think of. So if we're doing the Black Book and Part of the Black Book is we're going to talk about going through the corridor, going to specific memories um, when the, the tape loop was created. Mm -hmm. And you mention in the book how people will imagine adult self going back to them when they were like five years old and had like a specific event and be a mentor. Yep. And so I'm thinking, okay, let, let's go back to Incel Boy. So yep. he's been doing these black book entries. He's feeling more and more in control. He's not at the, the point of power yet. He's not at that point. Right. But he's trying his best. His entries are becoming more and more descriptive. And so he's like, okay, I've done the black book for let's say like two, three weeks. I feel ready to do my first corridor thing. And so he suddenly has this like burning rage because he just remembers a time when he was five years old and his stepdad like shamed him in front of everybody and called him like like gay or like use the right. uh and so how would he do the the recording over that tape loop so initially we want it to be tightly controlled and so what he would do is he would basically kind of put himself in the position of a visualization of being and i'll use the example that's in the book uh, or a version of that, where he's gonna put himself in his own bedroom during this event as an adult. So he can hear his stepdad basically reaming his younger self. And he waits for his younger self to come in. He doesn't directly intervene at this point. And when his younger self comes in, he's basically gonna just engage with him as he believes would have served himself the best. So perhaps he's like, younger self comes in and he's like, hey, your stepdad is a complete asshole. You're totally fine. You did nothing wrong. What he did is unconscionable. There's no reason for it. And it's meaningless. You don't have to hold on to it. Because we turn out fine. I'm here. I'm good. Uh, I'm here. I love that. I'm here. I'm good. Uh, we're here we're and here. we're good. But if you obsess about it, it's not going to help you. It's not going to help me. And so what, and we begin this process of, again, kind of diluting the experience is the initial process, right? We want to begin to take some of the sting out. We want to perform the first aid. And then later on, we might actually go back in and change our memory a little bit about it and overwrite the memory where we might see ourselves in that space as, um, <laughs> you know, uh, maybe as a kid with superpowers, right? With real superpowers. Uh, so we actually go into the corridor. We roll in with everything we know to that space. And this is a very advanced approach. 
we do the thing, stepdad starts to go off and we freeze him in place. And we just basically totally disempower him. Go, you can't do this. You are meaningless to me. You have no power over me. You've never had power over me. You believe you have power over me and you're wrong. And we begin to, again, just rewrite the, rewrite the loop, change the loop. Um, and again, we're not actually trying to replace the original memory with a new one. We're attempting to overlay information on the original memory um, that serves us better. Right now, you can create memories of yourself as an adult going back into your childhood. That could actually become a part of your quote unquote regular memories. Like you yes. may, after a while of doing this technique and doing the black book and writing down, hey, you know, like I went to visit my five year old self and here's this little note that the five year old self wanted to give me. And like even write in a maybe childlike handwriting, whatever it is, make it right. super real. And then after, I can imagine after a year or two, five years, 10 years of doing this, you will not know what is real quote memories and what are the memories that you created. And this is the point that freaks a lot of people out about this work. Um, and again, it depends on how you're wired, right? Um, when I began working with this stuff, I went in very hardcore because to me it was fascinating because I'm aware that my memories are not actual reality. They're not even necessarily accurate to what actually occurred, right? Totally. Particularly things that happened when I was very young. Right. This doesn't mean that the things that, they, that, that my memories of what was done to me aren't real. That I'm not saying at all. There's a thing too, we were talking about power. Power doesn't always have to be this light and fluffy love and light thing. Power can also be that deep sense of, I'm going to prove to you, motherfucker, that you can't beat me up anymore. Okay, so I know where the power thing kicked in. <laughs> See, <laughs> these conversations are excellent because they bring them around. So I mentioned in, I think, Weaving Fate that part of the reason I got into power, into magic, was to control unwanted possession experiences. And um, one of the things that was really, there were a couple of events that happened uh, dealing with kind of malefic to me spirit spirits that were uh, actively trying to do me harm, and this was the these are the, were the kind of the most overtly Hollywood experiences that I had. They were so severe that though I didn't necessarily see anything, there was no question something just off the handle was going on. And I remember one of these entities I'm going to call because I don't know really what it was got inside my body. This was my experience of it and was attempting to basically push my consciousness out of my body. And I remember that it was one of the places where I like learned that I had allies because what rose up in me was not anything cool or controlled. It was outrageous fury and will to destroy. It was like, I will burn down your world energy. It was like, I will nuke us before I give you what you want. And so that is a real thing. And I think that that was probably the first place that I tapped into that. And I've had other experiences where that version of power came through. And they're not all like that, but there is something very real in there. Let's say after about six months to a year in Cell Boy, he may no longer be in Cell Boy. I don't feel comfortable calling him in Cell Boy anymore. Yeah, no, he probably is not. This doesn't mean that he's where he's trying to go, because he's probably not. Right. But he's probably way more self-aware and aware of his kind of, he's probably not masking his vulnerabilities in the same way. Maybe he's also had fleeting moments where he felt that raw power and that... These things begin, and again, yeah, and, and part of the process that's very interesting in Weaving Fate, and, and I... I, as, I, as I've kind of done troubleshooting with people through the Facebook group a little bit, which is people are just starting to work with it, of course, because the book is pretty new. Um, I can usually tell which piece they're not do, people are not doing yet because there's a way that it begins to open up when all three pieces are being worked. And 
it makes sense to start them in chunks. It's not like you have to do all of it at once. That's just too much, really. But you don't want to just go, ah, the fever stone doesn't sound like it's legit for me. Don't do it. Just throw it in there and see what happens. I think that for most folks that are doing the work, they begin to see that combination of things. They begin to tap into a current that they can actually feel like, okay, some days feel really good. For a huge number of people, no days feel okay. But so for our guy, he's probably hitting this combo where he's going, okay, some days or some parts of days are really good. He's having the experience of still feeling kind of socially awkward, but being able to relax into it a little bit. So maybe he's talking to somebody and it's going pretty well and he says something a little bit odd and he's actually able to just say, was that weird? What about if we're talking, the second example, the second hypothetical that we discussed last time was of a young woman. And we're just going to use like super traditional gender expressions and sort of very stereotypical like gender things. Like this idea of maybe like she's really into K-pop and she's imagining and dreaming and thinking, oh my God, if I do this black book and all this stuff, I'm going to meet and marry this K-pop boy band member, right? That's her dream. Totally. Now, let's say that, you know, this is, we're not going to judge. We're going to be like, okay, consecrate your black book and stuff and start writing entries. Uh, hi, you know, diary. I am the wife of BTS's Jimin. You know, we're like, we live in Korea and I'm learning Korean right now and I'm learning so fast and everybody's like, wow, your Korean's really good. I'm eating all the food. Of course, he's super rich. We travel all around the world. And so I think that actually fan fiction, there's tons and tons and tons of young people online who have created fan fiction and they really feel it. The question mm -hmm. is how come they aren't able to have that come into their life? Or even that feeling, a lot of them, I'm sure, they're writing this fan fiction and okay, maybe not all of them will get to meet and marry Jimin, but a lot of them are also living lives of great pain. So that joy that they feel when they're writing the fan fiction, it's not translating. Why? That's a really good question. Um, and in truth, I don't have an answer that I know, but we can kind of unpack it a little bit and see what we see. I'm a big believer in a somewhat unpopular view that we should go for things that are not too far out of our world initially, because there's a way that we don't believe we can have it more than I think it's impossible. And whereas I don't think you have to believe that your magic will work, I think you have to believe that it could. The fanfic thing hit me, uh, you know, we, we've had, for those who are listening, we've had parts of this conversation before, but uh, <laughs> I guess we had recording issues. It reminded me of something else, which is, I was quite amazed when I came back onto the magical internet, kind of at the end of the live journal phase, yeah. that it wasn't around for that. Um, I was doing other things. And I discovered that there were kind of this hypersexualized deity fanfic. Oh, yeah. Going on. I had never seen nothing like that before. There is a difference between fantasizing and bringing that into magical work. And it's not the clearest distinction. So me just doing black book work about being, you know, some action movie star is never going to get me there. But I can use all of the tools in Weaving Fate plus, you know, acrobatics training and plus gym work and plus acting lessons and plus stunt lessons and plus, plus, plus to get where we want to go. Let's underline that because I think a lot of people, especially younger people, they see magic as escapism. They don't want to put in the work necessarily because they're intimidated, they're scared, they don't have the resources. So magic seems like, yes, this is going to be a hack. <laughs> and today's society kind of encourages people to find hacks and shortcuts. This is not a shortcut. Oh, God, no. Yeah. Um, yeah, I am amused by the hack concept. To me, magic has never been a shortcut for anything. It's a way of, for me, functioning in the world. Um, the world that is laid out 
by our kind of North American, U.S. specific Western culture has not made sense to me ever, as far as I can tell. My earliest memories are it did not make sense. And the things that began to make sense based on what experiences I was having were the things that led me to magic. And so if we're looking at, let's say, a young woman who is very dissatisfied with her life, we don't even have to know what the specifics are or where she's going to land to begin working with the Black Book. We just began imagining that space that's six steps closer to what she would like. So you look at all the things that aren't working. What does a day look like that doesn't have any of those? I'm, I just wrote down in my notes, like identity. So identity is kind of everything in this world. It is. A person who identifies and sees themselves as like a vegan, they don't need to discipline themselves the same way that somebody like me, who's very carnivorous, is around meat because they have an identity that's very different from mine. And my identity, like people always ask me, I could never spend two hours doing my makeup. And I'm like, well, that's because you and I have different identities. So we get different joy, pleasure. Absolutely. I get this for people. I get this from people because I like working out. Yeah. I actually enjoy working out. And my, I, you know, I'm 53 now and I can't work out as much as I like to anymore because my body doesn't recover as well. Uh, so there's a lot of people going like, well, how do I do magic for that? I go, I don't know. I have never had to do magic for that. That is just like, it's a thing. It's the same thing. I know people that can spend and do spend, you know, four or five, six hours a day reading books on magic. I've never been that guy. Yeah, I know people uh, who can spend 12 hours playing video games. I can't do that. I cannot do it. Um, you know, and so the identity piece is really fascinating. And I totally credit um, my friend Fabiku Fatumiche for turning me on to the concept of, he kind of clarified the identity piece. I had done identity work, but I really didn't know what I was doing. And as soon as he started talking about it one day in a class I took with him, I was like, oh fuck, okay, this, I just, I need to go and write. And so it's good to talk about this because a big part of what Weaving Fate is about is the identity. That, and so if we think about the identity for us just as modern humans, this is our sense of who we are. The most common place where we begin doing this work is the point where we go, anything is better than what I'm doing right now. Even if it's worse, because at least it'll be different. And just to clarify, identity mm -hmm. is not something that you're going to decide, okay, I'm going to have this identity and it's my identity forever. Magic is about you can change identities. You can change identities based upon context. No problem. Absolutely. And the way you live life when your identity is that I am competent. I'm not perfect, but I'm competent. Yep. Complete night and day difference between that versus if your identity is I'm always fucking up. Absolutely. Or yeah, just like I learn things well versus then I never fuck up. Or even I learn from my mistakes. I don't repeat those things. I don't give away my power. I would invite the listener, especially the younger ones, to really think about, even if right now your life looked exactly the same as it does in, let's say, two weeks from now, but the only thing that changed was this feeling, this identity. And you went from feeling like a complete and utter fuck up to somebody who's like, you know what? I'm actually pretty good at certain things. I'm pretty competent. Things may look exactly the same material-wise in two weeks, but how do you think your life will look? Even if you don't technically do anything, how do you think your life will look in six months? Even if you're not really trying very hard, what decisions would you make? How would your life just naturally, without real effort, change simply because of this identity shift? And I think we, it's, it, it's, it's very serious work. It's, it, we talked about it last time, I think, is that like what, if you just fantasize the things that are hard for you or easy for, and you begin to kind of play with those identity bits, it's not necessarily about who is absolutely the best. For people that are hearing this and going, there's something there, but I'm not sure I believe it. If you have been raised by or in relationship with people 
who kind of consistently define you down or tear you down. If this wasn't true, that this stuff, this identity stuff can either empower or disempower you, why are they doing it consistently? And they're doing it because it works. If they can tear you down, this is why people gaslight each other. This is why people tear each other down. This is why people say, who do you think you are to want that? It's because it works. This is totally full circle now because in the beginning of this interview, you mentioned how a witch is a type who will, even if people are just like, you're headed towards disaster. The track that you're on is that the witch will be like, okay, that'd be kind of interesting. There's a certain fearlessness, a certain sense of like, I'll, I'll manage. Or even if I, in the end, something quote unquote bad happens to me, it'll be interesting. There's a certain lightness, playfulness, freedom, flow, um, flexibility. I'm almost thinking of like a bamboo, like during a hurricane, it doesn't break. It's just kind of like kind of leaning low with the wind. I think that that is kind of the key to me is like realizing like, okay, if everything is changed and everything is, everything is changing all the time. It might change in a way that's more pleasant or it might change in a way that is, you know, unpleasant, but then it's going to change again and again and again and again and again. There's no stasis for the living. You may not have anything that you want in your life in this moment, but there's moment, 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 moment. And unless you really work hard and fight it, which is what a lot of people do, there's going to be a fuck ton of change. And magic is just about getting involved in the game and going, okay, let's see if I can change it like this. Okay, I did like that. Let's try this. Okay, that really sucked. Let's try this. Ooh, this is nice. <laughs> right. And I've noticed the more magic that I do, my identity naturally has started to shift in that I become less concerned because I'm just like, well, I can do magic. So when we talk about this feeling of competence of like maybe a certain fearlessness, what magic has done for me is that it's helped me realize that I have a certain amount of agency and therefore I don't need to be as afraid as I used to be. Sure, life is going to change. Things are always going to change. But I know that I can also meet that challenge because now my identity has gone from everything must be controlled because I don't know what's going to happen if things change. I might just fall apart. To it's going to change, but I know magic. I do magic. Mm -hmm. So maybe, and I've had enough magical experiences to know that things changed. I thought it was going to really, really be fucking awful. And it turned out to be amazing. And not only that, from that change, I was able to alchemize it and make it even a million times better than what I thought it could have been. So ultimately, magic, it gave me permission to be myself. Absolutely. And that's been my experience is to me, it's like, it's funny when I think about it, because I can remember being a little kid and being really confused by the shit that people cared about and that they were trying to make me care about. And I just couldn't. Right. And I wasn't capable of faking it. I was really uncomfortable. Now I'm at the point where if something goes wrong in my life and I do magic, the curiosity about, hmm, I wonder what this magic is going to do about the situation. That curiosity, it almost becomes greater than the fuck, what is the situation about? And I think that that's, again, that's tapping into that flow and power, right? As you go, okay, I know I have agency. This doesn't mean I have control, but I do have, you know, some level of personal sovereignty um, and I have agency and I get to play. And I know I get to play. And the way that I've learned how to play allows me really wild freedoms. You know, it's not one plus one equals two, which is the other thing people have trouble with magic is it's very odd. Yeah, using it as a tool for change is, is it, it is, that's what it is. It's, it's this art of change, right? Uh, it's like, how do you decide whether you're on a train and which train or do you want that alpaca? <laughs> uh, you know, what do you want to do? Because uh, the world is telling us all that there are only very specific things that we should want to do. I wish, I so wish that we had that first recording because I feel like this is sort of like the natural evolution of that conversation. <laughs> it's like, oh, you know. But wow, I feel as though I've gleaned so much more about the process from this talk. Um, it's, and you know, insult boy, thanks you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Aiden.
Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to the Witches and Wine audio experience. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting me on Patreon. You can choose between a few membership tiers. They're super affordable and flexible. Your membership helps me continue making videos, podcasts, articles, lots of different things about all the sweet witchy stuff. Links are in the show notes. Also, don't forget to go on iTunes and give this a five-star rating. Each five-star rating helps rank this podcast higher in searches so that as many witches can find and enjoy these episodes as well. Until next time, this is Chawan signing off. <laughs>